Our preacher for today is our brother Peter Conrad, and so Peter, come bring the word of God to us. Please turn to Luke 24. Luke uh, 24. And as we're going there, let's turn to have a word of prayer and ask, ask God to speak through his word today. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We recognize that we are here because of you, and we are here specifically because of Christ. So we ask that your word would be proclaimed faithfully. Spirit of God, I ask that you would speak through me, that as I explain your word, may I explain it as you intended it to be explained. May your spirit override and filter out anything that is unhelpful or strays from the meaning of your word. May your spirit encourage us. Encourage us and and open our eyes that we might see Christ more fully, that we might be prodded to follow him more faithfully. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. As we come to Luke 24, you recognize this passage Luke 23, at the end of there, uh, Jesus' crucifixion has just occurred at the hands of the Romans, at the request of the Jewish people, led by their rulers. After his death, he was buried. Remember how Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus' body and put it in a tomb. And then there were the women who came with the spices, if you remember. They had to wait because of the Sabbath. They had to wait to put the normal spices in and and preparation for burial until after the Sabbath of the following morning. And that's where we pick up in Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise. The women coming to this tomb were expecting to find a body. That's a natural conclusion, right? They just saw him die. They came in the natural ways of things with the spices to prepare the body. But when they get to the tomb, what do they find? They find an empty tomb. And this is to their astonishment. And what was probably even more perplexing to them was the the shining men that, that, that are there. To explain the meaning of it. And the explanation is, remember what he told you. We're going to see this repeatedly, so keep this in mind as we read through the text. We're going to see repeated references to remembering the words of Jesus. What he had said when he was alive. And we're going to see different responses to this this request, this admonition to remember. Well, how did the woman respond? What's our our first interaction, our first response to the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ? Verse 8. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So there we see, immediately we see a response of belief. They remembered. Not only did they remember They then went, and they became the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They went to the other twelve. They went to the apostles, right? They were up there in the upper room that were hiding. In verse 10, 
It gives us more information about these women. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. What kind of response do the disciples have to the words of the women who gave the report? There's doubting, right? An idle tale. Not only doubting, but just outright refusal to accept the message. In this um, account, we have Peter running. We know that from other passages, Peter and John both ran. But in this particular account, we, we have a record of Peter running. And what do we see? At least he was curious enough to go see, so we'll give him that. The other, the other ones just rejected it entirely and just stayed put. But Peter runs to the tomb, and he finds it empty, just as they had said. But he marvels. There weren't any angels there to tell Peter what had happened. Now, they had already told Mary and the other women, so by extension, you can say Peter heard that report. But he's still wondering. He's doubting. He's not quite there yet. He's not really believing the message. He just sees the facts. And he's tossing these facts about in his mind, wondering what to do with the empty tomb. While this is happening, we pick up again in verse 13. Another group of disciples who are contemplating these very things. Verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Ah, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We see here that there is these two on the way to Emmaus. They've heard a whole story by now, right? They even have more than the women had. They have more than the apostles have. And yet we still see some misunderstanding here, do we not? of the the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Notice how they're talking about this. Notice how they talk about Jesus. Did you notice how they, they call him Jesus of Nazareth? They're speaking of him in purely human terms, are they not? They're referencing his hometown of Nazareth, where he came from in this world, where he was born. Well, not where he was born, he was born in in Bethlehem, but where he grew up, where where he lived his his early uh, childhood years. They called him a prophet, mighty in deed and word. But they seem to only view him as a prophet, do they not? There's no no particular reference here to the deity of Christ or his, his redemption for sin. We see that they thought he would bring some sort of salvation, but it seems to be that of a political redeemer. They don't mention, they have no mention of sin, they have no mention of sacrifice. They, it seems that their dreams of this, of a king who would, who would conquer their enemies, that dream has been dashed. And now they stand here looking at all the pieces and going, how can our king, how could our king die? Where is our conqueror now? And they're even more puzzled at the report that the tomb is empty, are they not? Because now, well, where's the body now? They don't know how to put the pieces together. 
They're confused and they're perplexed. And Jesus' Jesus's response to them is telling, is it not? And at first it might sound a bit harsh. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. You see, Jesus pinpoints the problem of their heart. They'd had the whole Old Testament, did they not? They had the message of the women. Of Peter and the other who went with him. They had a lot of information. They had a lot of knowledge. But this knowledge had not seeped into their heart. And some knowledge was imperfect and distorted. So that their arrival at what actually was happening here in the death and resurrection of Christ was lost on them. But what does Jesus say in verse 26? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He tells them, you had the Old Testament. That reference of Moses and all the prophets, he's referring to the the totality of the Old Testament. You had Moses, you had the books of the law that foretold Christ, and yet you missed him when he was standing right in front of you. In verse 28, Jesus continues, the narrative continues, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You see, Jesus he says, oh, foolish ones. And he explains to them how they should have known from the Old Testament. But he continues. He doesn't, he doesn't just keep walking, right? He, he, he stays with them. And he reveals himself to them, does he not? In the breaking of the bread. This is likely a reference to Passover. The la- just a couple of chapters previously in Luke 22, we have a breaking of bread that Jesus does at the Passover meal. Jesus is revealing himself to them with these actions. He, he's revealing himself as the Passover lamb who died for sinners. But when do they get it? When do they understand who Jesus is and, and why he came? They understand when their eyes were opened. In the beginning of, of this walk to Emmaus, their eyes are closed. And then Jesus reveals himself to them. But how does Jesus reveal himself to them? He reveals himself to them through the words of the Old Testament. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The opening of the heart is in direct response to the opening of the word of God. The Spirit of God is acting in the heart of these men, and it's acting in the heart before they even realize it, right? They, they, they recall back to, our hearts were burning within us. They hadn't put it together quite yet. That when the hearts were burning, there was something going on within them that they weren't able to explain in the moment that their hearts were burning. That awakening was occurring. They didn't see it until after Jesus opens their eyes. Then they see, ah, he was working in our hearts all the way back when the word of God was being read and explained. This is insightful for us, for if we are to be witnesses of Christ, should we not take his model to heart? Jesus could have used any model, but what model did Jesus use? He took the word of God, the Old Testament, and said, here I am, I've been here all along. But this isn't the only time Jesus makes the same point. Let's continue. In verses 36 to 43, we have another appearing of Jesus to the disciples. 
He enters into the house where they are staying. In verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. The disciples are the last to really get it in this narrative. In fact, their doubt is so strong that it takes Jesus to appear in front of their face and to actually show them his hands and his feet. To actually have them touch and see. And yet, even as Jesus is standing in front of them with the marks in his hands, they're still disbelieving, right? It says it right there. And while they still disbelieve for joy and are marveling, they're still not quite sure if it was really Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Are we seeing a spirit? They're still not sure about about what's going on. And then Jesus eats. Just like he broke the bread in front of the two on the way, Jesus here eats, but this time broiled fish. Yet another response to the resurrection of Christ. And notice Jesus does a very similar thing that he did with two on the road to Emmaus. When he appears to the disciples here, he gives his explanation in verse 44 to 49. Then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus repeats those words. He again goes back to the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The entirety of the Old Testament. And he says that in the Old Testament is the key. The Old Testament is the key to who Jesus is and to why he did what he did. You notice how he doesn't refer back to the events of his life necessarily? He doesn't go back to just the three years and and trace the three years. He goes back to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's where we get the understanding of what Jesus did in the Gospels. The Gospels and the Old Testament are linked together in an unbreakable link. The one explains the other. And this is what Jesus explains to them. And again in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How does he open their minds to understand the scriptures? He explains the Old Testament, right? He goes through and explains. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That is Christ's summary of the Old Testament. That is his summary of the main message of the Old Testament They're condensed in a sentence. So today, let's follow Jesus' model. And let's briefly see, how is this possible? How does the Old Testament foreshadow and foretell and explain the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Who Jesus is why he came and what he did. The main idea for today's message is because Jesus fulfills the promises, he has commissioned his people to be witnesses of himself through his word by the Spirit to all nations. Because Jesus fulfills the promises, he has commissioned his people to be witnesses of himself through his word by the Spirit. To all nations. We'll break this down into two main points. 
Jesus fulfills the promises through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus fulfills the promises through his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Those are the the five main movements of Christ. We think of his birth. We see references to this here in Luke 24. We see references that, that define who is Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, first he is Christ, right? In verse 45, that the Christ should suffer. Verse 25, that the Christ, or verse 26, that the Christ should suffer. So Jesus calls himself the Christ. Well, who is the Christ? I mean, where does that title come from? We can go to the Greek lexicon and we can say it means appointed one. Great. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean that Jesus is the anointed one? What is he anointed to do? Well, let's, let's look at Genesis 3.15. All the way back in the very beginning in Genesis 3. Remember, remember that the creation of mankind is beauty in its perfection. But how quickly Adam and Eve fell into sin. And, we have, and how God comes to Adam and Eve. And, how, and God comes and he comes first with a promise even as he brings judgment. But in the face of judgment for sin, there's a promise here in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here is the first promise of redemption in the Bible. This is a starting point of the whole idea of a coming redeemer, a coming savior. This gets fleshed out as we trace it throughout the Old Testament. But here it starts in Genesis 3.15, that in the face of sin, God will send an anointed one, a redeemer, a savior, who is Christ the Lord, as Matthew puts it. We also have another reference to who Jesus is. And again, these are shared at the birth of Christ, which we'll see in a minute. There in Luke 24 and verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered. Well, who's the Son of Man? This this idea of Son of Man has a rich history in the Old Testament, does it not? Think of Psalm 8. We read Psalm 8 as the call to worship today. In verses 4 to 6, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This Son of Man is a kingly figure, is he not? He's crowned with glory and honor. He's given dominion over the works of the hands. All things are under his feet. Remember how this language was was initially given in Genesis 1 to mankind? But when mankind sinned, mankind forfeited his rulership of this world. But there would come a greater son of man who would accomplish what the first son of man failed to accomplish. We see the son of man come more into focus in Daniel 7. In verses 13 to 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Uh, We don't have time to explore the whole of Daniel 7, but the Ancient of Days is a reference to the Father, and it's described there in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days in this glorious, in the glorious vision of him. But there, along with the Ancient of Days, there's another figure as well, One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And how was this Son of Man described? Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Again, a kingly figure who will be given dominion and glory. He will be given a kingdom, a kingdom that comprises all peoples, nations, and languages. This again is, who is this Christ? Who is this coming Redeemer? He is none other than the Son of God. This is brought out in even more clarity in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. God has come to David, and God is revealing to David what we call the Davidic covenant. And as he describes the Son of David that would come, How does God describe the son of David? 
In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Well, who's the I here that will be his father? That is God. God is saying, I will be his father and this coming son of David will be my son. So the son of man is is both fully man, right? He comes from the body of David. He is human in all that it means to be human yet without sin. But he is not merely human, is he not? He's also the son of God, as it's declared here. So this title, Son of Man, is both a reference to the full humanity of Jesus as the greater son of man, the greater Adam, who will rule over the kingdom of God once again. And it's also designating this Christ as the son of God in the fullness of deity. This is why in in the birth narrative, well, before the birth, right before the birth narrative, in Luke 1, 33 to 34, how is Jesus described in the prophecies that come before? Luke 1, 33 to 34, And behold, you will conceive in your room and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. If you read the birth narratives and and the prophecies about the birth of Jesus, you will see a heavy influence of Davidic promise. You will see clear references to Jesus as the Son of God. And you will see a clear message that he came to redeem his people from their sin. Well, who is Jesus? The Old Testament makes it abundantly clear. From the Old Testament, not merely the New Testament, from the Old Testament we see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. We see he is the promised offspring of the woman who was appointed or who was anointed to defeat sin and death. He's the greater son king who would rescue sinners from the wrath of God and represent them to God. Well, how about his life and his death, and we'll view life and death together. Well, if you, re- if you recognize, uh, re- remember Isaiah 53. We read that uh, earlier today. Isaiah 53 gives us a clear depiction of who Jesus, of who he is, and what he would do. We see there in Isaiah, but before we get to Isaiah 53, I want us to look back in Genesis 3 again. In Genesis 3.21. Just as Genesis 3.15 leads us to 2 Samuel 7 and this revelation of this Davidic king, so Genesis 3.21 leads us to Isaiah 53. In Genesis 3.21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. We're jumping back now to the Genesis narrative again. In Genesis 3.15, God talked about this coming Redeemer, this coming Savior. But in Genesis 3.21, God also says something very instructive about what the Redeemer would do. Now, it's very subtle here in, in, in verse 21. Almost imperceptible. But let's look at it a little closer. Why is the Lord God making tunics of skin? Well, you can say, well, because they needed clothes. Okay. Their fig leaves weren't good enough. I mean, skin is better than fig leaves. I'll grant you that. (laughs) More covering, more protection. I don't think that's, that's the whole reason why Jesus is making new clothes for them. It's interesting that, that Adam and Eve, they try to cover their own sin, right? They take, they take those fig leaves and they try to cover up what they have done. This is an act of Adam and Eve symbolically trying to do something to cover what they have done. But notice how God doesn't deem their attempt to cover their sin as good enough. That's, we try to do that all the time, don't we? <laughs> how often do we do the same thing Adam and Eve do? We do something wrong, we try to figure out some way we can cover it up, we can make it look not so bad. We're just like Adam and Eve so many times in our lives. But notice what God does. He doesn't even initially rebuke them for, for, for doing it. What does God do? He kills an animal 
spills the blood, takes the skins, and clothes them. Is this not a picture of sacrifice? Where the blood of the animal is spilled and the covering of the sacrifice removes the guilt. And as we go through the narrative of the Old Testament, we see that's exactly what the sacrifice does. In Genesis 22, verses 13 to 14, remember how Abraham, God tells Abraham to go sacrifice his son. And so Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. And how his son, his son is asking, oh, you know, we got the wood, we got the fire, but, but where, where is the animal? Where is the sacrifice? And how Abraham takes his son and, and binds him as he was told to do and puts him on the altar. And he, and he goes to, to actually sacrifice his son, knowing full well that God will do something. Hebrews tells us God will do, that he believed God would do something, but he didn't know what. But he was faithful. And his hand, hand is there to drive that knife into, into Isaac. And the angel of God comes out and stops him. Then we see here in verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. He looks up and he sees the ram. The ram then takes the place of Isaac. The sacrifice dies instead of man. But what's interesting is Abraham's, the tense of the, of the verb that Abraham uses in his description. He calls the name of the place the Lord will be provide, will provide, and that in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is a future tense. He's not talking about what just happened, namely the ram that's being slaughtered to take the place of Isaac. He's not talking about that specific event. He's talking about a future day when a future sacrifice will provide what was needed. Will make the atonement for sin. When we come to Jesus, where was Jesus crucified? On that very same mountain range of Mount Moriah. Literally, in that very place, the sacrifice was provided. The sacrifice of Jesus. And so when we come to Isaiah 53... Verses 10 through 11, we get one of the clearest explanations of sacrifice in the, in, in the entire Bible, not merely the Old Testament. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The Christ would suffer the wrath of God to pay the sin debt by bearing the sins of all nations on himself. For we are the ones that accrued a debt before God, did we not? It was our sin that called forth God's displeasure and God's anger. And yet, despite it was our problem and our sin that, that broke that relationship between God and man, Yet Christ takes our place on that cross. See, we couldn't do it. We couldn't go to a cross. We couldn't be that sacrifice because we're tainted with sin. We couldn't ascend to the throne of God. We, couldn't, we can't even enter into the Holy of Holies because our sin renders us incapable of appearing before a holy God, much less making an offering for the sin that plagues our very souls. But this is what is very different about Jesus' humanity. A true humanity, yet it was a sinless and is a sinless humanity. We Remember we read in Isaiah 53 that there was no deceit found in the suffering servant. 
So we read in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. Do not think that I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus makes it quite clear. He's came to fulfill the Old Testament. To fulfill the law of God. And he lays down the criteria for entering into God's presence. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is an impossible, impossible reality for us. We can never be as perfect as God because we are plagued by sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, equal with God, can be as perfect and is as perfect as the Heavenly Father. You see, what we could not do, Jesus does, and it starts with his life. The perfect life we could not live, that's what Jesus was doing on his earthly, in his earthly ministry. For three and a half years, Jesus is living that perfect life that we could never live. He's earning that righteousness according to the law that we could never actually accomplish. Some, some try and say, well, if I balance the scales enough, if I just do, if I do more good than I do bad, God will accept me. If that's your hope, my friends, you will be sorely disappointed because that's not the measuring scale. The measuring scale is, are you perfect as God is perfect? If you can achieve that, then by your own works, you can go to heaven. But my friends, who here can say they're as perfect as God is? That in and of itself is a blasphemous thought, that we would think that we as sinners can come even close to the holiness and the perfection of who God is. Christ lived a life that we could not live. He earned the righteousness that we could not earn. See, we needed to be covered, right? And it's the righteousness of Christ that covers us. As we continue in the passage, we notice something very interesting. Notice in Luke 24... If you look back at verse 46, it's written that the Christ should suffer. We see that clearly in Isaiah 53, do we not? We see this. We call him the suffering servant for a good reason. He's the one who suffers for us. He's the one who credits us with his righteousness, who dies in our place. But after he died to make atonement for sin, taking our place, dying the death that we should have died, then clothing us with righteousness that he earned. Then he rises again on the third day. And you might ask, where in the Old Testament does it say that Christ rose on the third day? Notice again that Jesus is not talking about his earthly ministry here. He's not saying, oh, I told you at least three times in my ministry that I would rise again on the third day. He did tell them that during his earthly ministry. But Jesus again is saying that this is recorded in the Old Testament. Jesus is explaining Genesis to Malachi to them. He's not using the New Testament at this point because he is. (laughs) Right? The Gospels are the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where does Jesus get this idea that he's supposed to rise on the third day from the Old Testament? If you look back at Genesis 22.4, there's, there's an interesting phrase you will find throughout the Old Testament. Remember again that Abraham, this is the beginning of that narrative where Abraham offers the ram instead of Isaac his son. Right after God tells him to go sacrifice his son, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar off. When does he see the place? It's on the third day. On the third day, he sees redemption. We have redemption and salvation in connection here with the third day. Now, of course, it's not expounded, but it's there. Yet, why wasn't the second day? Why wasn't the fourth? It could have been any day, right? 
God could have made his looking and seeing the place of redemption. That could have been any day, but it's specifically marked as the third day, the day of salvation. And you'll see throughout the Old Testament that a lot of salvation acts happen on the third day. It's a theme. It's a pattern. So sometimes the Old Testament tells us things in patterns, not always in an exact verse. Sometimes you have to see the whole read through the whole entire Old Testament, and notice things that are repeated. If you see a, a repeated event, that's, that should mean something to us. That's telling us that this is important, and we need to remember this, and this has meaning. But Hosea 6.2 is probably the most clear. In Hosea 6.2, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. This is a resurrection now. Not only, not merely generally salvation, but this is a, a, a resurrection that's happening on the third day. You see, the only way that we can be raised is that Christ rose on the third day, right? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 15 makes that whole point, right? But the only way we can be raised is if we are joined in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the only way for us to rise again on the third day is if Jesus himself rose again on the third day. You see, this is something that the Old Testament believers should have seen. They should have known that on the third day there would be a resurrection. They should have been looking for that. And that's what Jesus is saying in this narrative. He's saying, look, there is a whole Old Testament that's revealing to you what's going to happen here. He repeatedly told them, I am fulfilling the Old Testament. That all will be accomplished. All will be fulfilled. And so Jesus lives that out. So we've seen his birth, his life and death. We've seen his resurrection on the third day. We also see that he ascends. That happens there in verses 50 to 52 in Luke 24. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his, his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into the heavens. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Jesus not only rises again on the third day, but he ascends into heaven. Why does he ascend into heaven? He ascends into heaven because that is, he, he takes his offering. And there in, in the heaven of heavens, the heavenly temple, his actions, his death is enacted. What happened on earth are copies of the great salvation that is secured in heaven. If you're curious about that, read through Hebrews. It talks about how the earth are copies and how it happened, the life, death, resurrection of Christ this drama that was played out on earth. It was all going toward the, the, the inaction of redemption. When Christ ascends to the throne of God, having conquered sin, having been the re redeeming sacrifice, he goes to the throne of God as the redeemer, the high priest. And it's when he ascends to the throne of God That there, the, all of it is accomplished. The ascension is a vital doctrine to our faith, and sometimes it's overlooked. But notice how many times in Acts you notice a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension where Jesus becomes king, where the promise is that he will be the king and dominion will be given to him. This is where it leads to. This is the culmination of all that Jesus did. This is the, the crowning act where he sits on the throne of God and the promises are fulfilled and where he reigns as the promised king. The second point will be much, much faster. Because Jesus fulfills the promises... He has commissioned his people to be witnesses of himself through his word, by the Spirit, to all nations. In light of who Jesus is, his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, 
he now commissions his people to be witnesses of himself through his word, by the Spirit, to all nations. Well, very clearly we're called to be witnesses of Christ's gospel, are we not? Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things in verse 48. We are witnesses to the gospel that Jesus just explained. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, died in our place to pay our sin debt, credited us with his human righteousness, and rose again as the exalted Son of Man to represent us to the Father. The gospel is the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. They're all incredibly important to the gospel work of Christ. And this gospel work of Christ always requires a response. And Jesus mentions this here in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his nation, in, in, in his name to all nations. Right? We are called to be witnesses of Christ's gospel by calling people to repentance. Right? The birth, life, death, resurrection of an ascension of Jesus Christ is not merely facts. They're facts that call for a response. That's why throughout this narrative we see response after response after response. Luke here is giving us the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. And then he's chronicling all the different responses that we might see and learn from the different responses that are, that are, that are called forth in this text. We are witnesses of Christ's gospel. We are witnesses to Christ's gospel through his word. Again, Jesus models this. How was Christ a witness? Twice. He makes the point. He's a witness through the Old Testament. How are we witnesses of Christ? We proclaim Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There are some there are some, and I'm not saying this is always a bad idea, for just up front. <laughs> it's never a bad idea to read the Gospel of John. Always good. <laughs> what I would recommend is that we start in the Old Testament. I would recommend that we follow the model that Jesus gives us, where Jesus, as the witness, goes to the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, and he reveals himself as the fulfillment of what was said there. We run the risk when we start in the New Testament is we run the risk of giving them a Jesus that is not complete. How, how, how could this be? Well, if somebody just has a simple, cursory knowledge of who Jesus is, they just watched a movie or, or heard some references. They don't actually know Jesus at all. We come to the New Testament and we say, here's Jesus. Well, what, what Jesus are they seeing? Is, is it the Jesus that they've kind of thought in their minds, that they've, had, that, that, that kind of they've brought together bits and pieces here and there? Is it the Jesus of a different religion where I work? Many are, are quite believing Jesus. No problem. We'll believe in Jesus. No problem. Of course. He's a great prophet. Of course, we'll believe in Jesus. But it's not the right Jesus. So how do, we know, how do we know the right Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us. The Old Testament will tell us who the right Jesus is. Second Samuel 7 will tell us who the right Jesus is. He's both fully man and fully God. That's the only Jesus that is true. Now, sure, we can say that in the New Testament because it says that clearly in the New Testament. But my friends, there's power to seeing fulfillment, is there not? There's a power to, to showing someone the Old Testament saying, hey, who is this person? Who's this redeemer? Who's this anointed one? And you read through these important passages and then you come to Christ in the New Testament and you go, hey, doesn't Jesus match this whole description? We, we got a matching description. And there's a power, there's an opening of many eyes to that fact that when they see Christ in the Old Testament and they see the revelation of Christ in the Gospels and that comes together, that is a, a powerful witness to who Christ is. So my friends, I know some of the Old Testament is confusing, but don't ignore the Old Testament. Don't brush it aside. Don't diminish it. Don't run right to the New Testament thinking, oh, they'll understand the New Testament better. If that were the case, then Jesus would have just told them about his earthly ministry. 
But Jesus didn't just tell them about his earthly ministry. Jesus told them about the whole Old Testament and explained it and took the time to walk through. And that's one of the biggest things that people say. Well, if, if we do this, if we, the Old Testament's huge. It's like three-quarters of the Bible, right? It's 66, 66 books, and the higher percentage is in the Old Testament. How are we going to do that? How are we going to walk through all that? Isn't that going to confuse them? Aren't they going to get bogged down? Are they going to understand? And I would just note that ought we not to trust the Holy Spirit? Did not Jesus open their eyes and reveal himself to them? Merely the reading of the Old Testament is not going to open their eyes. They need the awakening of the Spirit in connection to the spoken word, the written word that we speak and we proclaim to them. Don't be afraid of methods that take too much time. Time is not the issue. Proclaiming Christ in his fullness, that is the more important thing. Do we not see in Romans 10, 14 to 17, the importance of the word of God? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. My friends, if we want to see faith, we have to open up the word of God. If we want to see people turn from sin and repent, we have to open up the word of God. They have to know who Jesus truly is. There is no substitute for the simple and clear proclamation of Christ from the whole of Scripture. That is the method that Christ gives us. We can do other things, but let's never stray from this. Witness through his word by the power of the Spirit. Notice again, witness through his word by the power of the Spirit. Jesus tells them that you are, my, you are a witness of these things and says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This happens in Acts 2, right, in Pentecost. The power from on high is the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't go in our own efforts. We're not trying to, to debate people into the kingdom. We rely on the Holy Spirit to awaken the heart, to convict of sin. How do we rely on the Holy Spirit? We proclaim the Word of God. And it's the Spirit of God who takes the Word of God that opens the heart and awakens the dead to life. We have to have the right message, the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need the whole entirety of the Word. And we need the Spirit to open and to reveal. And the last part of being witnesses, we are witnesses to all nations, right? To all nations. Notice that. In his name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. We go to the ends of the earth because we have the message of life. The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, that message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is true for every single human being on this planet. There's no other way for, for anyone to come to God but through the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It may be tempting to think of other ways. It may be tempting to think, well, are they going to understand these concepts if it's a different culture? My friends, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to walk up to somebody who's from a different place than you are. Don't think, oh, no, they're not going to understand it. Maybe, maybe it's not going to come across the way that I, I think it should come across. My friends, there's one message of salvation. And it's true for people of all nations. Every sojourner, every immigrant, aren't we all sojourners? Aren't we all on our way to another place? My friends, look at the nations around us. They're all here. One of the, one of the many things about our current times we live in is that everyone is pretty much everywhere. <laughs> You don't have to go very far to find all nations. Sometimes you just have to go next door. 
Sometimes you just have to go to a neighborhood near you, to a store, to a marketplace. The nations are actually here in many ways. The question for us all is, are we witnesses to them? Are we fulfilling Christ's command to be witnesses to all nations? And some people think that means you have to go overseas. No, it doesn't. We're all called to be witnesses, whether we go overseas or whether we stay in our city. Wherever we are, we're called to be his witness to all nations. There's no special category of people that are supposed to do that. That's all of us. All of us here. We're all witnesses to Christ, to his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. I have two challenges in closing for you. How do you read the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament just confusing? Oh, just real confusing. I don't get the sacrifices. I don't get Leviticus. I don't get Numbers. I don't get you know, the prophets, Zechariah. I, I don't get these guys. My friends, don't be discouraged. It can take work. But did not Jesus, did not, Tim, it was actually, did not Paul say, study to show yourself approved unto God? You know, we're actually supposed to study. It takes work. Sometimes it takes blood, sweat, and tears. Sometimes you don't understand right away. Sometimes you read it and you don't get it. We've all been there. <laughs> there are many portions of Scripture I read and go, man, one day I hope to understand this. But today is apparently not that day. And that's okay. We're called to study and to seek and to search and to toil in the Word of God. Knowing that in His time, He will reveal. My friends, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't grow tired. Don't grow weary of the Old Testament. It's God's word to us. Love it. Pursue it. Seek it. And see Christ. Seek for Christ in the Old Testament because he's there in every page. The last challenge. What kind of witness are you? The women, they remembered and gave faithful witness. Remember? They were good models. Were they not? The two on the road to Emmaus. Not quite as good, right? They were slow of heart to believe the scriptures. But when it was revealed, they believed, did they not? And they were witnesses and they went back to disciples. It took them longer. So some of us are like the women. We hear, we believe, we, we, we respond right away. Praise God. Some of us are more slow of heart to believe, are we not? Some of us need more persuasion. <laughs> some of us need more encounters with the word of God. How about the apostles? They feared and did not believe he had bodily raised to life. And it took Jesus appearing to them, showing his, his hands and his feet. It took them a while. It took them a lot longer, did it not? They needed more exposure to Christ. So friends, as we witness... I think we'll see in our own lives that we're like, all, we're like all of them at some point in time, are we not? Sometimes it takes us a while to believe what the Word is saying. Sometimes we don't want to believe it. It's a truth that just really is just, we struggle with believing that truth, whatever it is. Is forgiveness difficult for you? Well, for most people, right? We struggle Can, how to truly forgive, and we're slow to forgive so many times. We're slow to believe in the cross and the forgiveness that's offered to us. And sometimes we fear, right? We fear. And the fears that, that swirl around us, they dim our eyes to the cross. The fears of, of, of sickness, or the fe- it can be any fear, right? A fear of being killed in a car crash. There are so many fears. The fear of a bird or a bug. or what, you know, There are so many fears in this world that can, that can draw us in to focus on that fear. But my friends, Whatever fear is in your life, take it to the cross of Christ. Don't let your fear dim your view of Christ. What kind of witness are you? Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you sent your Son to be born, to live, to die, 
to come back to life and to sit on the throne of God. What a glorious gospel. A gospel of freedom from sin. A gospel of of conquering evil. We praise you and we thank you. Grow our faith in your gospel. Give us more repentance of our sin. Drive away our fears, our doubts. Drive us to the cross. Lift our eyes to see the enthroned Christ. Fashion us to be your witnesses. Imperfect though we may be, drive us to your word from Genesis to Revelation to seek you, to pursue you, and to proclaim you that all nations might hear. To the praise of your great name for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray.